Well, uh, let me start by saying we had a, a really exceptional weekend last week. Um, we, as a church, we packed 250,000 meals for uh, desperately needy children in Nigeria. That is twice as many as we set out to pack. That's a great thing, a, a God thing. I have to think very pleasing to him. So uh, kudos to Alex for his great leadership on that whole Feed My Starving Children initiative. And thanks to those of you who, who gave money to support it and um, 700 of you who were involved in uh, packing meals. And given that we had 250000 this year, we'll step up and try and do 300,000 next year because, well, we can. And the second thing that happened is 89 orphans were sponsored through IN Network. And uh, that means, I'm sure there are hundreds of of orphans being sponsored here at Christ Church. When I came back from Nigeria, having visited Life Builders uh, and Emmanuel and Blessing a couple years ago, I know there were about 84 orphans that were sponsored out of Christ Church. And uh, some of you worked through World Vision and, and uh, Compassion. Those are great, very effective programs that provide uh, meals, medical care, education, and uh, the gospel to, uh, to these kids. So it's very encouraging, a good weekend. Now I have a question. Is, is that enough? Is 250,000 meals and 89 orphans being sponsored enough? Uh, One of the questions we need to ask ourselves is what is expected of us? What does God expect of me? If we believe that there is a creator God who made us in his image and gave us some assignments, one of the things that we always need to be asking is, what am I supposed to be doing? What is expected of me? What is required of me? What would please the God who made me? Are we doing enough? Well, we get a very specific answer to the question, what is expected of me, in Luke chapter 3. It's not an exhaustive answer, but it's a very specific answer, and it comes in the context of John the Baptist delivering his message, his wake-up call to the people of Israel. He comes out of the desert, he comes to the Jordan River, and he breaks the 400 years of prophetic silence by calling the people of Israel to get ready because the kingdom of God is at hand. And in the context of giving that message, John says some very important things for us. Now, I'm going to call John the Baptist, John the Baptist, and John interchangeably here. Uh, So I'm just giving you a heads up. We usually only refer to him as John the Baptist to keep him straight from John the Apostle. It's a little cumbersome. I, I, I often think that perhaps a little bit more planning would have helped us avoid things like this. I, 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 you know, Zechariah and Zephaniah, really? Uh, was that necessary? Elijah and Elisha, uh, I mean, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, really? I mean, is that, is, that just seems a little confusing. But that's what we're working with. And uh, John the Baptist, also just known as John, uh, is a significant 
player. He has one foot in the Old Testament as the last Old Testament prophet. He has one foot in the New Testament as the first New Testament prophet. Jesus will say later in the Gospel of Luke that no one born before John, Abraham, Moses, David, no one born before him is as significant as he is. And uh, uh, the, the Gospel of Luke opens when the angel announces to Zechariah that John is going to be born. And so we're going to look at John's initial message. It comes in Luke chapter 3. You can turn there, and while you are, let me say that this is going to find John in the desert. Uh, this is a, a region just, to, uh, just south of Jerusalem. This is where lots of the Old Testament prophets would go. We believe that John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were very old when he was born, die when he's young, and he goes out into the desert. Perhaps he's with the Essenes who give us the Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe he's by himself. We just know that he has lots of time to meet with God. And, and this is where the Old Testament prophets had spent time. This is where Jesus is going to go. And additionally, uh, this is where the desert fathers were. So if you read the letter I sent out this past week talking about the series in the fall called Seven, which is a study of the seven deadly sins, I mentioned that, uh, that after Constantine issues his Edict of Toleration in 311 and, and ends the, the ban saying that it was illegal to be a, a Christ follower in the Roman Empire, after that happens in 311, um, that lots of people come to faith. And so many people come to faith that some of those who were already following Christ are a little bit frustrated. They feel like the church is being polluted by people who had a less than sincere faith. Right? Before that, to be a Christian could cost you your life, could, you could end up in jail. Now that that ban is lifted, everybody's coming to faith and they feel like the faith is being watered down, both by Constantine and government influence and by all these other Christians who maybe have a less than serious faith. So given that, some people went out into the desert to get away from the corrupting influence of the church. And among them was this guy named Evagrius Ponticus, and he writes, and we've got his writings, he writes that even in the desert, away from all the corruption of culture and the corruption of the church, there were these eight evil thought patterns that followed everyone. And he identified these later on. They'll be refined a couple hundred years later into the seven deadly sins. Well, we're going to look at the seven deadly sins. Pride, greed, lust, gluttony, sloth, anger, and envy. If I got those right. We're going to look at the seven uh, in the fall. The point now is they also come out of this same desert. Everyone goes to this desert to try and meet with God. And that's where John the Baptist is, which means he's not been following in his father's footsteps. He's sort of doing an end run. He's not leading a synagogue. He is out in the desert. And when he comes in and issues this call, we'll see that lots of people flock out to hear him. And they are shocked by the message that he gives them. It's a real wake-up call. So we read that beginning with chapter 3, verse 1. Gospel of Luke. I'm reading now. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Traconitus and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Okay. When in doubt, just read the names quickly and with confidence. <laughs> These names tell us two things, essentially. One, it's 29 A.D. Okay. Before there was one who was so significant so uh, radically better than everyone else that everybody will agree that his birth will be the, the universal reference point for history. Before that, everybody dates uh, the calendar by political leaders. So this is that. It's 29 A.D. Luke wants to give us a very accurate, concrete account so we can have confidence in the report we're being given. The second thing that this list of names tells us is that things are going poorly for the Jews. God promised to give land to Abraham. They're in the land that God gave them. But this list of Roman names, Gentile names, means they're not in charge of the land that they were given. So Tiberius is Caesar over the whole Roman Empire. Pontius Pilate is the governor over what used to be the nation of Israel. And then it's further sliced and diced under these tetrarchs. None of them are Jews. So the, the Jewish people are occupied, heavily taxed. It, life is not going well for them. So in the 15th year with Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, um, Philip, and others... Verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, it's unusual to have two high priests. Annas has actually stepped down, turned things over to Caiaphas, his son-in-law. We have a current precedent of a religious leader stepping down and turning things over before he passed away. That had happened here. It was unusual here as well. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Okay, so now Luke wants us to be sure that we understand John is fulfilling the prophecy given by Isaiah 700 years earlier. So the prophecy that Isaiah gave was that a voice of one calling in the desert prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The imagery here is of, of, a, of a road crew that would run ahead of the king's caravan, filling in potholes, leveling bumps, taking out hairpin turns, generally making the path that the king was going to travel as smooth as possible. 700 years earlier, Isaiah had said, there will be a forerunner for the king, but for the Messiah, who will come in advance and get the road clear. Right? We'll make, make it known to everybody, get ready, the king is coming. This is John the Baptist. He has come out of the desert to prepare a way for the Lord. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. Verse 7, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee 
from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, well, this is not uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, This is a very strident uh, message that would have been as unpopular to hear than as it was today. Today, prophetic voices are uh, not generally welcomed in part because we live in a time where every idea and opinion is to be embraced except the idea and opinion that suggests that perhaps not every idea and opinion should be embraced. And so uh, this is a... This is a a prophet delivering a message from God. Prophets don't do feelings, right? They they are all about truth. And this is so they're hard to be around. It's why they live in the desert by themselves. Uh, They're hard to get along with. But John comes out and he delivers this prophetic, strident message. And here's what you need to understand. This message was given... It was directed to religious people. This isn't a message that was being given to everybody. We tend to think that when a call to repentance goes out, it's specifically targeting, right, other people, those who are who are doing drugs, that are being promiscuous, that are lying, that are stealing, right? Bad people who have got all kinds of sins, they're the ones that need to repent. No, John is, not, John is not speaking to those people. John is not talking to everybody. He's not standing on a street corner in Jerusalem. He's down at the Jordan River. That's a long hike from Jerusalem. The people who go down to hear a prophet are religious people. Right? And, and that, to some extent, means us. We're here. We're, we're doing a religious meeting right now. And John is speaking to religious people, and he is telling them that they need to repent of their religion. Religion, generally, suggests that there are rules to follow. Right? And this drives people into one of two paths. What it's supposed to do in the... In the, in the sense of the Christian faith, the law that was given by Moses that we find in the Old Testament that is further expounded upon by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, what it's supposed to do is to help us understand where the bar is and to make it patently obvious that we cannot keep it. That, that only one person keeps the law, and that is Jesus, and that we need Jesus in order to qualify. What the law tends to do, what religion tends to do, is there's a whole group of people that look at the law and say, I'm not interested in even trying, or I tried and I failed, and I'm going to walk away. And it also has the pattern of having a whole bunch of people saying, you know what, that's the bar? Well, I think I'm doing quite well. Thank you very much. I think I'm one of the good people. I'm not like other people. I I don't do these bad things. I'm one of the good ones. We know from the other Gospels, because this account is found in all four Gospels, we know that the Pharisees and Sadducees were there, the religious right and left of the day. 
And they are among the ones that Jesus is saying, right? Repent of your religion. Repent of your smug, self-righteous, religious pride. (laughs) You need to understand that you also are broken. Jesus later, John right here, is saying to these people, right? You are broken. You need to humble yourself and come to me with humility, recognizing that it's grace that we depend upon. Uh, Last weekend I was at a a board meeting for Scholar Leaders International, a, a ministry that uh, Christ Church has supported for 20, 25 years. Emmanuel is, uh, is one of the scholar leaders. We, we work to identify and then invest in uh, best and brightest, young and proven leaders from Africa, Asia, Latin America, former Soviet bloc countries, help them with their PhD studies, provided they have what we call level four leadership positions when they return to their home country or continent that they're going to uh, start organizations like Life Builders. They're going to be presidents of denominations, presidents or deans of Bible colleges and seminaries. They're going to write books, be thought and opinion leaders in the church. And uh, it's, Christ Church has supported this ministry for a long time. Um, and there are about 260 uh, scholar leaders out there right now around the world, Emmanuel being one of them. Well, we had a board meeting in, in uh, Los Angeles at, at campus of Fuller Seminary, and, and it was a great meeting, lots of good things to report, and I got some time with um, a friend of mine, longtime sort of friend and mentor for me, uh, a guy by the name of Mark, who's, who co-founded Scholar Leaders and has just now been appointed to be the president of this seminary. We were having our meeting there, he came and he spoke to us, and, and afterwards he was reminding me that he started Scholar Leaders in order, in part, to help ensure that he kept big things big. He grew up in an irreligious home where his father was hostile to things of faith because he said religion makes big things small. So Mark had no exposure to the church, no exposure to, the, to, the, to Christ until he went to college, and he ends up reading the Gospels for the first time. And as he's reading the Gospels, he is shocked to discover Jesus, who clearly is keeping big things big. He's fighting the Pharisees, who are trying to make big things small, who are trying to reduce the things of God down to this list of rules. And Mark said, I I saw in Jesus somebody who I had to follow. And almost immediately upon coming to faith in college, he felt a call to ministry. And that frightened him. Because as he looked around at churches, he says, what I see in churches are people who make big things small. And he says, I don't want to ever do that. And so he said, I've got to find ways to surround myself with people who are not going to do that, who cannot afford to do that, who are working with orphans and widows and being reminded of the compelling call that we've been given to keep the right things first, big things big. So the question goes out to you, the question goes out to me, to all of us, are we keeping big things big, or have we in some way reduced 
the things of God to something that we might actually think we're pretty good at. (laughs) That means we are a brood of vipers, right? That is exactly who John is saying, repent. Your attitude is the exact opposite of the one that God is looking for. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. There's actually three things that we get called to here. First, repentance, which means to to turn. The the Latin root here is verte. The word revert is to turn and go back. Convert, to convert, is to turn and go in a different direction. Is to recognize we're headed in the wrong direction and we need to go back. It's to agree with God that we're headed down the wrong path, that our lives are not what they could be or should be. It's to to self-report our sins and failures. It's to agree that we are broken. So there is a call to repent. This is to be followed by being baptized, which was a radical call at this time. Today, we talk about John the Baptist, and everybody here is familiar with the idea of baptism. This would have been the first time anyone suggested to a Jew that they needed to be baptized. Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism, there was a baptism for that. And there were certain rituals in Judaism, foot washing and some other things that called for people to be cleaned in some way. But the idea that a Jew would not go to the temple to have their sins forgiven, but would actually go to the Jordan River to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins was a very new and radical idea. And then the third thing that he says is produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do good works. Fruit is what you see growing out of your life. The way that this is structured grammatically suggests that it's an urgent, ongoing command. Fruit is in the plural here. It's not just do one good thing to prove that you're in or to earn your way in. It is you should, as an ongoing pattern in your life, care for others, serve others, go out of your way to help the marginalized, the lost, the poor, the broken, that is what you are being called to. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. John is a Jew, he's speaking to Jews, he's saying, don't think that the I'm Jewish, I'm going to be fine because of my birthright is going to work. Do not think that, for I tell you that out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. There's a pun here in the original language that does not translate into English, but basically he's saying, don't play the I have a in in with God because of my, my ancestry. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, John, um, Jesus later will use the same kind of idea. You can tell a tree 
by its fruit, an apple tree produces apples, a pear tree produces pears. You can tell the quality of someone's heart and life by how they are living and the fruit of their life. Very frightening statements from John and later from Jesus about trees that are not producing fruit being cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. I mean, you can imagine. They finally, a prophet, after 400 years of silence, someone has come out of the desert. He's speaking at the Jordan River. The people go out to hear him. Right? They're expecting to hear the times at hand. I'm the forerunner. You know, the Messiah's coming. He's going to overthrow the Romans. It's going to be the glory days. Back with King David and Solomon. That's where we're headed. It's all good. (laughs) And what they get is, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And so they're asking, well, well, what exactly should we do? Right? How do we get ready? And John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. Tunic is uh, sort of an undershirt you wore under your robe. So anyone here have two t-shirts? The man... With two t-shirts should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors came also to be baptized. They, they were the dregs, the worst of the worst, right? They were traitors. The Romans, when they took over an area, would go and say, anyone here want to collect money from your friends and neighbors? Whoever promises to give us the most money, you get that little franchise, and uh, then whatever you raise over that, you get to keep. So the tax collectors are traitorous, Money, hungry, uh, people taking food out of your kids' mouths. The tax collector said, well, what, what about us, right? We're, we're even worse. What do we do? And John doesn't overthrow the system. He just simply says, don't collect any more than you're required to. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? These would, these would be Jewish soldiers working for the high priest, probably helping the tax collectors collect money. Um, In most parts of the world, the police are bad news. You don't want them to show up because they tend to make situations even worse. When I was in Lagos, three times in one day, the police uh, tried to shake out bribes from us. That's, That's the typical scenario. That's what's going on here. So some soldiers asked him, what do we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So what might John say to us if instead of coming out of the desert to the Jordan River and preaching to the Jews in the first century, he, uh, you know, drove down from Wisconsin and uh, stopped in Lake Forest at, uh, at Lake Michigan or all the way to Union Station and went down to the Chicago River and began to preach to the people in Chicago. What might he say to people today. You know, on the one hand, the message is different because he's not a forerunner to Christ. He's not going to say the time is at hand. He's going to say, look at Jesus, right? His life, his death, his resurrection, right? That's the hinge point of history. That changes everything. But on the other hand, I think the message is the same. Repent be baptized, and do good works, right? Not do good works 
so that you will be loved. That's religion. Repent of that. Repent of any pride. Repent of any idea that we're any better than anyone else. Right? Strike that notion right now. You pack 250,000 meals. Great. That's not what it's about. You're not going to buy your way into heaven with that. Repent. Be baptized. And go do good works out of a heart that is overflowing with an awareness that God has redeemed us in Christ. So, let me say, in just a second, I'm going to lead us in a prayer of confession and repentance. Before that, if you have not been baptized, today would be the right day for you to sign up to be baptized. Later this summer, we're doing another One Church One Day on August 11th. We will have a baptism. Uh, If you are a Christ follower, being baptized is expected. It's not that being baptized saves us. It's not that water washes away our sins. But the New Testament doesn't really have a category for someone who says they are a follower of Christ who's not publicly identified with Christ in baptism. So today would be the day for you to sign up in the lobby to be baptized. And then we go out to do good works. So let me invite you now to stand. There is a prayer of confession that comes from the Book of Common Prayer that I want to lead us in right now. Join with me as collectively we pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways, to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.